Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to the Nature Careers podcast. I'm Julie Gould. This month we're talking about career mobility and the challenges that young researchers face when working in different countries and in different cultures. I certainly remember the first time I was in one of the more conservative countries in the Persian Gulf and offered to shake hand with a a female colleague and she was a little bit taken aback because that would have been a little breach of etiquette there. So we didn't shake hands and I quickly and rather sheepishly put my hand down. And we're going to be hearing from an associate professor in Bosnia who is working hard to change the futures and fortunes of early career researchers in her country. So I actually finished my master's studies and my PhD using pressure cooker as a sterilizer because I had nothing else. Science is a global enterprise and there's nothing really very unusual about jetting across the world to undertake a PhD or postdoc position. A UNESCO report published in 2015 found that between 1995 and 2013, the number of students pursuing higher education abroad rose from 1.7 million to 4.1 million. Now many of those students will find themselves in countries that at first feel very unfamiliar and it's important to do your homework before you head off. Now, leaving aside some of the more obvious differences, such as language and currency, there are more subtle lessons and things to pick up along the way. In May 2018, we published a careers article called How to Fit In When You Join a Lab Abroad. And at the time, we talked to Andrew Spencer, who is a UK-based trainer who himself travels the world, advising organisations on how to address some of these issues, including, I have to say, here at Springer Nature. So, hello, Andrew. Hello, David. I wonder if you could begin just by outlining some of the preparation that you'd advise somebody to take before they do leave home to do a PhD or postdoc abroad. I think do your homework, as you put it, but don't get too bogged down in some of the small details. What I'd advise people to look at is some of the larger cultural norms that inform the way that each society operates. For example, how do people view being late for a meeting? So what does time mean in different countries? Things like how hierarchy is viewed, how uh, formal or informal you can be, um, how direct or indirect you need to be in your communication. There are a whole number of factors to consider. You talked there, Andrew, about a sort of a minor breach. What would you say was was a minor breach in the scheme of things when somebody first arrives, say, at a lab and does something that probably they would think, actually, I picked up some cues there, suggest I probably didn't get that quite right. 
I think it's things like offering to shake hands in a culture where that's not the done thing. So I think people are, I'll give a little bit of grace for those kinds of minor breaches. I certainly remember the first time I was in one of the more conservative countries in the Persian Gulf and offered to shake hand with a, a female colleague. And she was a little bit taken aback because that would have been a little breach of etiquette there. So she, we didn't shake hands and I quickly and rather sheepishly put my hand down. Um, but there was no bad blood left after that. I think we both recognised that we just had slightly different cultural expectations. What did you do instead, just out of interest? I just sort of said hello and nodded and shuffled my feet and was very English about it, David, right. to be honest. What is the risk of resorting to stereotypes when you find yourself abroad and just making these sort of clumsy assumptions? I think it comes back to this idea of doing your homework. So stereotypes can contain the germ of truth. The danger with them is either you've got the wrong stereotype or probably more, more likely, you're using that stereotype as too broad a brush to cover an entire nation, um, which contains a huge variety of individuals that think and operate in different ways. So uh, a colleague in the US, again, this is broad brush stuff, but it contains quite a lot of truth. A colleague in the US may be trying to give you a difficult message. For example, that they, they're unhappy with your timekeeping. Let's just take that as an example. And what they're very likely to do is what they call the feedback sandwich. Well, they'll, give, they'll tell you something great about yourself and then they'll say, but maybe you need to be on time a little bit more. And then they'll tell you something else good. And unless you're used to that kind of indirectness, you'll come away thinking, well, I've got two good bits of feedback and there's one thing I should be a little bit concerned about, but it's not too much of a big deal. But that little thing was the entire point of the conversation. And in the UK, we're perhaps a little bit more likely just to go straight to that one point. Um, in France, they're very likely to go straight to that one point. So again, these little variations about how people communicate, if you don't know that, you can either not pick up the message at all or come away offended at the strength of the message that you received. Right. OK, so, so that, that's that's interesting. And, and there are other there's other some other terminology beyond feedback sandwich that, you know, you have alluded to in some of the emails that we've exchanged over the last few months. And, um, you know, I, one of them that kind of <laughs> really intrigues me is you talk about peach cultures. And um, mm-hmm. I'm really intrigued to know more about what a peach culture is and, and where it applies. So it's about the length of time and how superficially and easy it is to bond and make friends outside of the workplace within a particular culture. A peach culture is one where it seems superficially easy to get to know people. So it's very, very soft on the outside. You travel to your new lab. People are extraordinarily friendly to you. They might have coffee with you at work. You get to know everyone on a first name basis really quickly and you feel I'm making friends. But as time progresses, You realise actually that no one's invited you to their home. You've not been out with people outside working hours and people away from the workplace lead quite separate lives. Or indeed, there are cliques or groups that you find it very difficult to break into. The United States, to come back to to them again, Mm. would be a, a little example of a peach culture. The other kind is what we call the coconut culture, which is very hard on the outside. Russia would be an example of this. So if you arrive at a workplace in Russia, that that kind of immediate first name terms, very relaxed around each other, will probably not happen. People will maintain a distance for some time. But once you really get to know somebody and you break through that outer shell of the coconut, inside it's much softer and easier. And once you're through, you're through. That's it, you're in. I think this is a really key point. There is no right way and wrong way between different ways of cultures thinking about things. There are only different ways. So it's very easy for us to look at the way that our culture operates and just make the innate assumption that that's the right way. But it's just one way of many. And 
if you go in thinking my way is right and everyone else's is wrong, no matter where you come from, um, you're going to give yourself a difficult time and probably not have a successful um, you know, postdoc or uh, working experience in another culture. If you go in prepared to recognize that their way of doing things is as valid as yours and that you should be curious about it, find out about it, ask questions about it, be open to it and be prepared to change yourself. You'll be in a really strong position to get the best out of your experience. Andrew, that's a great way to end. I just want to ask you one more question. If people want to go and find out more about this, if they are faced with a, you know, an overseas move, you know, where would you suggest they start looking beyond our feature and obviously this podcast interview? The best guide that I would recommend is a book called The Culture Map by a professor at INSEAD Business School in Fontainebleau near Paris called Erin Mayer. And what she does in that book is she's taken the anthropological research from a number of different zones. And she takes that along with a number of other ways that societies differ and puts them into effectively a series of maps. So it gives you a sense of the ways in which things can be different. And and you can think about where you are and where the culture you're moving to is. Andrew, thanks very much for joining us today. An absolute pleasure. Thank you, David. David mentioned the article, How to Fit In When You Join a Lab Abroad, which you can find at www.nature.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Another aspect of moving abroad for your research is to understand the working environment and bigger picture of the scientific research landscape. You might be very familiar with what's happening in your own country, but moving somewhere else could be a completely different ballgame. I met a lady called Erna Karalia, who is an assistant professor at the Faculty of Science at the University of Sarajevo in Bosnia, where the academic environment is completely different to anything that I have come across. And that's partly due to cultural and social events that have happened in that country over the last two decades. And these things have all shaped the way that science is done over there. Erna and I met whilst we were at the Euroscience Open Forum earlier this year, which was interesting given that Bosnia is not currently part of the EU. Anyway, she was on a panel that discussed the career paths of PhDs and she mentioned some of the challenges that are faced by early career researchers in Bosnia. And these challenges are, although not unique, certainly not ones that are faced by researchers in many European countries. And it all dates back to when Bosnia declared its independence from Yugoslavia and the Bosnian war that followed between 1992 and 1995. So before the war, my faculty was one of the leading faculties in ex-Yugoslavia. And the research was pretty much a big deal in the country. Uh, During the war, most of the laboratories were destroyed, especially in Sarajevo, which was the center of the research in Bosnia and Herzegovina. And after the war, everything was moving so slow that even now, after 25 years, we still don't have um, facilities that they can measure with facilities abroad, like in Germany or even in Croatia. So uh, in my faculty, we still don't have a big laboratory that can provide us with the instruments and everything else that you need for the life science research. 
this is not true for other research like economics or social sciences or mathematics uh, sciences that don't need big equipment expensive equipment but for life science it is still a big problem because we cannot afford to buy hplc or something like that that we need for our research how come there is such a lack of funding available for for equipment for basic equipment that you need for life sciences research uh, well the percentage of gdp that is devoted to science is very very low almost unmeasurable and uh, that is due to the huge administrative apparatus that we have we have 12 or 13 ministries depends how you look at it of education so you can imagine there is over 100 ministries overall when you count all of them for finances and everything so this administrative apparatus takes huge portion of money from the government and also uh, schemes like Horizon 2020 are out of our reach since we since we don't have the equipment to do, so to say, serious research. So um, there is a little bit of positive light. I was a part of expert group for from Versa Balkan countries. Um, there was an idea to, to create a funding scheme only for Western Balkan countries. This would be some something in between to apply before you can apply for Horizon 2020 to give you equipment, to give you finances to do serious research so you can compete with other countries when you apply for Horizon 2020. This is now um, foundation is formed. It's called Western Balkan Research Foundation. And I was also part of the expert group that created the foundation. Uh, the foundation and the Western Balkan process is facilitated by Leopoldina the German Academy of Science, and they actually organize everything and they are really a big, big part of it. And that's going to have a big impact on early career researchers as well, who are really keen to become life scientists. Yes, this is a foundation that is aimed at early career researchers, because this is the most worthy people to, to fund into, because they are at the beginning of their careers, so if you give them funding like 700 thousand euros for five years grants this is how this is supposed to work you get three quarters of a million to start your laboratory to get equipment to get you going and then you can apply for like erc grants and etc so in this first two three to five years from your phd you will be able to apply for this western balkan research foundation and when you finish that grant you will still have time to apply for erc because ERC starts two years after your PhD. So this is really great mechanism to get a laboratory and to be able to compete with other laboratories in Europe. You were obviously okay. started your scientific research career at a time when there was very little funding for scientific yeah. research. So how did you make it work? How have you managed to, to become a, a, an associate professor? To start with, you need a lot of enthusiasm, to be honest, <laughs> and optimism. When I started working at the faculty, I was at my bachelor's level. I got a position as a professor's assistant when I finished my undergraduate studies in biology. And my master's studies and my PhD was done in a laboratory that is equipped with a desk. And when I started my PhD, we got a spectrometer. So this was all equipment that I got. 
And I wanted to do my master's and PhD in in vitro culture that actually requires laminar hood flow, requires autoclave to sterilize everything. But we are very innovative people because we have so little, so you have to manage from what you have. So I actually finished my master's studies and my PhD using pressure cooker as a sterilizer because I had nothing else. And through collaboration with people who left the faculty and left abroad and work in laboratories that are equipped, my PhD was mostly done regarding the analysis that I used for, for my plants. Everything was done in Czech Republic. Uh, I have a colleague that works there and her boss is a great guy. He did it for free and I paid him back with a paper and everything, but still it, it's a lot of work and it's a lot of chemicals and a lot of finances that I used from his projects, but he was really, really with a big heart. He said, it's fine. I understand how it is. This was really like luck. And also because if you want to do research in Bosnia, you have to try everything, you know, not be embarrassed to write hundreds of emails to different laboratories to ask for them. Are they interested? You will pick them back with a paper because that's everything you can offer. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about papers because whilst we were at ESAF, you also mentioned that when you hire scientists, you only look mm -hmm. at their publication records. Yes. Or that's that's how the situation is in Bosnia. So can you can you tell me a little bit more about that? Because there was there was a bit of a shock in the room when you when you said that. Everyone was quite surprised. But this is mostly regarding the, the law that we have. The look the law uh, requires you to have minimum of everything for the higher uh, like senior professor's assistant or assistant professor. Uh, you have requirements of your publication record and also you have to have uh, master students that you supervised. Later for associated professor, full-time professor, you have to have also PhD students that you supervised and publication record. But this is really slippery, sort of speak, because we have uh, high expectations and still we have very low equipped laboratories. So for assistant professor, when I was applying, I needed three publications that were in international magazines that are web of science with impact factors. So for a person who works with, you know, laboratory that is with plants in a laboratory, poorly equipped, it was really hard to get those publications because there is somehow, I don't know, rejection because you are from Bosnia, because you don't have a big name associated uh, to your laboratory, you don't have a big name associated to your name, or your supervisor is not a big name in the in the science world. But I guess that's the problem with a lot of laboratories, not only in, in Bosnia. I was going to say that's more of a, a global phenomenon, potentially, rather yeah. than just Bosnia. Yeah. yeah. But that, make, that must make things very, very tough for early career researchers, which is, I guess, why this new uh, funding sit scheme that's coming in that you're that you're on the board of is going to be really great for these new up and coming early career researchers. Yeah, I, I am really, really enthusiastic about it because it is going to be a game changer for early career researchers in Bosnia because a lot of people are going to pursue then PhD careers because its supervisor will have 
an opportunity to apply for a grant where he can employ a PhD student because right now you don't have a big enough grant to employ a PhD student. So there is no PhD positions. And this is somehow very difficult. So you mentioned that there's no funding for, for people to, to hire PhD students. And whilst we were at ESOF, you also mentioned that people actually have to pay to do their own PhD research. So how do people fund their PhDs when they're in Bosnia? Again, it's from the life science and from biology. I can only speak from my own experience. If you are lucky that your supervisor gets a big project, he will do his best to pay for your scholarship. If you don't have a supervisor that has a big project, you are not employed by the supervisor. I was employed by the faculty and faculty paid me my salary and that's it. The scholarship for the uh, and um, the tuition fee for the my master studies and my PhD are paid by myself. So either you somehow scrape from your own salary, or some people, you know, get go to the bank and get a loan. I would really emphasize um, how much people like to research. If you are willing to, you know, yeah, pay the loan to the bank to get your research done, and also, some people didn't got the funding to pay the, for the chemicals. I was really lucky because most of my chemicals were paid uh, by my supervisor, by her project. She devoted all the money for the chemicals, but, you know, the project was very small, 10,000 euros. So it was limited what can get paid. And um, but some of the stuff I had to buy myself, you know, to make my research easier, to make it more credible and everything. Say a scientist would like to come and work in Bosnia, but they are completely unfamiliar with the country and its culture. What would you say that they would need to know or understand about the way things are done there in order for them to get on well? Things get a little bit done slower than maybe in other countries. You need a lot of patience, but also people are very heartwarming and also very open that people should come to see how enthusiastic are people and how they work in very poorly equipped laboratories. So maybe they would appreciate more the outcomes that we put out, you know, the publications and all the research that we do. Okay, Erna, thank you very much. Uh, thank you. Nature Careers have looked at other situations where researchers are having to make do with few resources in their article, How to Do Science in Resource-Poor Settings, which you can also find at nature.com forward slash careers. That's it for this episode. I want to thank Andrew Spencer and Erna Karalia for speaking to us. And of course, you can follow our adventures online at nature.com forward slash careers, on Twitter at Nature Jobs and on Facebook. Thanks for listening. I'm Julie Gould. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. 
Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.